Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. That's Arizona's fault, really. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why we don't have daylight savings here. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. You're all good. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you were supposed to in a half hour. So, Sweet. That was my fault. <laughs> it's all good, man. You're in Jersey, right? Yes, I'm in Jersey right now. I'm heading back to Iowa. Uh, today, actually. So. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually from Morristown, New Jersey, so, and I just go to school out here. Now, are you doing online classes, or? It's so, like, the first few weeks, we started a few weeks ago, they've been online, and this week was, like, the official move-in date for people, but I came in early just to work for our sports broadcasting department, and uh, it's kind of half and half, you know, like, 50% capacity, and then I guess we're going to wait and see if things, you know, quote-unquote, blow up here, and then they end up sending us home, so we'll see. Oh jeez! <laughs> talking about having you know live sports for you guys. I mean, are you are you having hoops or? Uh, so right now, I I think they announced men's and women's basketball is going to start November 25th, like right around Thanksgiving. And this week we actually have a broadcast for like an inter squad scrimmage for men's soccer. So they're doing that. Nice. And I think we have a few uh, inter squad scrimmages for baseball too coming up. So like they're giving us some content to work with, but yeah, fall sports for the most part were postponed. That's awesome. No, yeah. Goes on without a hitch. I hope so. I mean, that's the plan. I mean, as of right now, if everything goes according to plan, we're gonna have like seven sports in the spring because all the sports that were postponed this fall, I think, are gonna start in January. Wow, so you'll be pretty busy. Uh, I love it. I, I hope. I hope we have seven sports going on at once. That'd be a blast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just wanted to pick your brain about uh, your broadcast career and some of your experiences, uh, kind of growing up. I mean, right now, obviously, you didn't have a season in 2020, yeah. and you've you've been home. Is there anything that you kind of like look at right now that you kind of like appreciate? Because I know for me, just being home for like, the past six months, I've been able to like gain a more uh, a clear perspective on things, things I want to do moving forward, things I kind of want to pursue was there anything that you looked at uh, over the past few months that you kind of appreciate more when it comes to your job in the business uh, absolutely uh, just being able to have the time during the summer to spend with my family I, mean, I was able to make it back to new jersey a couple times and uh spend time with my parents and you know by my dad's in his mid-70s and you know spent time with my girlfriend we fostered a dog during the pandemic and then we wow. adopted the dog during the pandemic so uh gaining a member to our family and uh, just being able to spend the time together. I mean, we don't normally get to do that during the summer, and you know, this is my or was supposed to be my 12th year of minor league baseball. So, uh, having a, a year in the middle where you know you don't you know play 140 games in 152 days, and you don't have this strenuous travel, and you're allowed to actually spend time with your family during the the summer times, which was supposed to be so much fun, even though it was a, a little bit different of a summer, I was able to appreciate that. Yeah. Um, also, just missing calling baseball games. Uh, yeah, when they brought back Major League Baseball, you know, being able to, to, to turn on the radio at 7 p.m. And, and listen to some of the best do it. I mean, I, I was able to listen to you know, all 30 Major League Baseball teams' radio broadcasts because of the MLB.tv package. So, you know, just being able to listen to Eric Nadell in Texas or Ken Korak in Oakland or you know, the, the Yankees broadcasts or Howie Rose and 
in, in New York, just being able to listen to all those big league broadcasters and take you know, what they do so well and you know, hopefully be able to implement that into my own broadcast sooner rather than later. Uh, it, it's been a really good learning process. And growing up on the East Coast, who were some of the guys that you kind of uh, were inspired by growing up, whether it was in Philly or with the Mets, Yankees? Well, I grew up a Philadelphia Phillies fan, okay. you know, diehard growing up. So uh, Harry Callis was, was my soundtrack oh, yeah. to summer. Uh, you know, it was a it was a voice that seemed to be aged in whiskey and cigar smoke yeah. for decades, and yeah, that's what I envisioned broadcasting baseball. You know, what that was supposed to sound like, just turning on Harry for three hours and just being entertained. I mean, I can listen to Harry narrate paint drying, let alone baseball yeah. games. So uh, <laughs> Harry Callis was definitely uh, my my idol from a broadcast perspective growing up. Now, like I said, the past six months, kind of like gaining perspective on things, spending time with family, obviously the number one uh, thing there. But for you as a broadcaster, has there been anything that you've kind of like nitpicked like from like your past uh, uh, things that you want, kind of want to like change moving forward? Or is it more just like getting more repetition moving forward for next season? Well, always. I mean, I've gone back over the last six months and listened to some of my calls from you know, really 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. I, yeah, I happen to believe that actually some of my best audio came from when I was broadcasting A ball in 2017. Yeah, it's like a hitter with a hitting streak. Sometimes, you know, the, the ball, baseball seems like a beach ball for the hitters. Sometimes the broadcast, they, they just slow down for you. I mean, everything's moving in slow motion. You, you're able to call the game so accurately and, and, and paint the picture so well. I mean, yeah. So you try to go back to thinking, you know, what was going on then? You know, what was I thinking? How was I prepping? You know, um, yeah, how did I, you know, what meals did I eat? How much rest did I get? So, yeah, you go back to those times where you do call the good games and you kind of ask yourself, why did I do that? You know, right. is it something that I asked during the, the pregame interview or down at batting practice? Was it a conversation that I had or uh, how well the team was playing or if there was a rehab appearance? So, just you know, asking myself those questions and going back and listening to the good audio and asking myself why did I do that and how can I repeat that? Are you one of those guys that like you can't stand hearing your own voice, or is it more of just like a discipline thing when you're actually going back and kind of uh, critiquing your own work per se? <laughs> you know what? At this point, you kind of have to hear the, the sound of yeah. your own voice if you want to have any sort of success. I mean, I remember early on in my career, I hated it i could right. not stand it i thought my voice sounded like nails on a chalkboard but it's just becoming you know, more secure with yourself as a person as an adult and then also as a broadcaster and, and just you know, hearing that inning where you're just like oh this actually sounds all right i mean that just that just feels like a huge confidence boost so making sure that those innings happen more often than less and and hearing the good innings and hearing how well you sound uh, definitely helps the process of listening to your own voice. So w this year, when did you kind of realize that the minor league baseball season was kind of going to get wiped out by the whole COVID-19 pandemic? Because obviously we had spring training. We had about one week left of spring training before uh, opening day was supposed to take place, March 26th. When did you kind of realize that uh, this was not going to be like a, a two-month thing? It kind of just escalated throughout the entire year. Right at the two-month point, yeah. uh, around Memorial Day. You know, when, when, there was, when Memorial Day came and the weather started to get warm, but we really had no plan in sight, and, and the numbers for COVID-19 were just going up and up, uh, we kind of had to look ourselves in the mirror and say, we're, we're probably not going to have a season. And then, you know, the numbers went up in June. I actually got COVID-19 in June, so that was a pretty stressful two to four weeks. So 
Yeah, I would say around Memorial Day when it was like 86 degrees and you know, we had no schedule in sight and, and the numbers in Florida and Arizona were all spiking high. And we kind of had to look in the mirror and say we're, we're probably not going to have a season. Man, and, and for you, like in those first two months, like I mean, everybody was just kind of like in shock and all. Like it was just a shell shock moment right away. Like for me, I know I'm in school one week, the next everybody's getting sent home, and you're basically blocked in your house. And me, and you, like from New Jersey, like that it was the the epicenter those first few months. Like it, it was it was insane. What was your experience like in those first uh, few weeks? Well, it was actually pretty crazy. I was, uh, you know, on March 12th when, when the NBA shut down and really the entire world of sports shifted forever. I was on a flight from Des Moines, Iowa to New Orleans, Louisiana for a wedding. And, uh, you know, it was pretty scary around then when everything's shutting down. And I thought about just taking the flight right back to Iowa. But uh, we spent the weekend in New Orleans and we went, got back to Iowa on March 15th. And March 16th is really when everything shut down and when everybody shifted to work from home. And, you know, we essentially got back from New Orleans and self-quarantined for 14 days. So uh, the world kind of changed right in front of our eyes. But, you know, from that point until, you know, when we knew that there wasn't going to be a baseball season, you have to tread that fine line of still – yeah, prepping for a baseball season and making sure that you're prepared if that does happen and just getting your reps. I mean, I know every Sunday what we were doing for the Iowa Cubs, uh, we were broadcasting games on uh, MLB The Show. Yeah. So we were recording the games and having like our own version of Sunday Night Baseball. So just trying to stay sharp in that way. Um, and then also, I do a couple things for the iCubs. I'm their broadcaster. I work in their sales department. I'm also their travel coordinator. So making sure that I dot the T's across there, dot the I's across the T's you know, for all three facets of that, making sure that all my sales contacts um, are ready to go if we do have a season, making sure that we still have our flights and bus trips uh, from a travel perspective if we have a season, and making sure that I'm able to broadcast up to my abilities when we do have a season. So just keeping prepared. You know, that's what I did for the first two months until we figured out that there wasn't going to be a season and you, you kind of go through the 12 stages of grief and then you prepare for 2021. I mean, how frustrating is that aspect, kind of like booking flights and having to, to cancel flights and all of that stuff? <laughs> you know what? It, it stinks. Obviously, you don't want to do that. You don't want to spend six hours a day on the phone with your travel yeah. agent. But if you consider everything that's happened, you know, 200,000 people losing their lives, so many other people affected, I mean, it, it, it pales in comparison. Uh, if that's the worst that I have to deal with, just you know, being frustrated with our travel agent or an airline for not returning all of our fees when they said they were going to, uh, I'm doing pretty well. So you have to take everything into perspective. Yeah, and I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about how you kind of got started in broadcasting, obviously from uh, the, the college level, whether it was uh, uh, Summer Ball, Gateway Grizzlies, having like a host family, some of those experiences, all the way to getting your uh, current gig in Iowa with the Iowa Cubs and AAA for the Chicago Cubs. Like Just a brief overview, because it, again, it was not like a linear line per se. It was not a, a straight path to AAA. Like, uh, just briefly kind of explain what that whole experience was like for you over the past decade. Yeah, I mean, you're looking for a brief explanation, and there's some irony in that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not It's not very brief. Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, I went to school about 25 minutes outside of downtown Philadelphia. Um, and my friends and I actually started the sports broadcasting club in our high school. So that's something that you know, we wanted to do from a, a young age. I think we started in our sophomore year of high school. And we were able to call all the games, you know, volleyball, basketball, football, soccer, lacrosse. It was actually the only sport I didn't broadcast was baseball because I played. 
Uh, but then I went to Indiana University. I, I majored in journalism, uh, doing student radio in the newspaper for four years. So uh, just getting in front of a microphone was you know, my main operative when I went to college. Unfortunately, I was able to do that. Uh, in turn with the Lehigh Valley Higher Picks, AAA affiliate from Philadelphia yeah. for two summers when I was in college. Uh, but I did anything from you know, fetching chicken sandwiches for the broadcasters, <laughs> from the concession stands, to pregame, postgame interviews, to pregame and postgame shows, to charting pitches, to helping our broadcasters develop their, their Twitter persona. So I uh, did a little bit of everything and everything. Then my second year was more on-air stuff with them. I was actually able to fill in uh, for a road trip in Rochester, New York, uh, because the play-by-play broadcaster, Matt Province, his wife was having their second child. So I was able to call some games there. Uh, then the summer after I graduated college, uh, I got a job at the Gateway Grizzlies, Frontier League affiliate, or sorry, Frontier League. Uh, no affiliate because there's no affiliation. But, um, yeah, got paid $250 a month, stayed with the host family, was their number two broadcaster under Adam Young who now broadcasts for New Mexico State. Uh, did that for a summer, uh, then got a job at the Huntsville Stars, double-A affiliate for the Milwaukee Brewers. was with them for two years, then they got sold. Uh, didn't go back there for 2014, their lame duck season. Um, and actually took a, kind of a step back uh, to take two steps forward. Uh, I went to Oakland, California. I was a broadcast intern for the Oakland Athletics and actually was not on air in 2014 and just doing media relations duties and, and listening to Ken Korak and Vince Contronio every day and, and taking a step back and recognizing at, at 25 years old, I still had a lot to learn and I had yeah. to humble myself and, and realize that I was uh, developing some bad habits as a broadcaster in Huntsville and in order to correct those habits, being able to learn from the best really helped that. Um, after that summer, I went to Australia, broadcast for the Melbourne Aces uh, of the ABL, and just being able to go over there from October to January when it's you know negative twenty degrees on the East Coast, it was ninety degrees and sunny on a beach in Saint Kilda, yeah. Australia, right by Melbourne. So I couldn't really complain about that. Uh, did that for a winter or their summer out there. Came back and, and started from the bottom up. I spent a year of rookie ball with the Idaho Falls Chuckers. Then two years with the Bowling Green Hot Rods, Midwest League affiliate, A-ball affiliate for the Tampa Bay Rays. And then I got the job in Iowa. So I went independent ball, double A, out of baseball, Australian Baseball League, rookie league, single A, triple A. So as you said, it was not linear. Yeah. Wow. And you kind of mentioned some of those humbling experiences, like right out of the gate, kind of getting chicken sandwiches for the current play-by-play guy. What were some of those humbling experiences throughout your career when learning from those veterans above you, whether it was from a technical standpoint in broadcast or, like, as you mentioned, kind of doing some of that dirty work early on? Uh, and by dirty work, you mean being the mascot of three yeah. or four first locations that you've been to. I mean, I was the mascot for the St. Patty's Day Parade. I was a mascot uh, at a birthday party when it was 97 degrees, and it was a 12-year-old's birthday party, and I came and they tabletopped me into the wave pool, and I wow. almost drowned. I mean, stuff nice. like that. I mean, it really, uh, when you look back and, and telling the story, and, you know, if you write a book about your time in minor league baseball, those are the stories that you really look back on and uh yeah just being the mascot and going on you know sales calls and reading to kids at schools i mean it's all part of working in minor league baseball it's not just calling the three three and a half hour game on the radio it's pulling tarp at seven o'clock in the morning it's pulling tarp at one o'clock in the morning after a double header it's you know arriving to the ballpark early for a blood drive it's serving as a mascot the team spokesperson uh, working as a sales executive. I mean, there's, there's so much that goes into it that it's not just calling the game. So I think that's what, what I've been 
able to take out of it over my 12 years working in minor league baseball that, yeah, broadcasting is really important, uh, but it's all the other stuff that goes along with being an employee in MILB that, that makes it so special. So wanting to become a broadcaster out of school, kind of going into that whole uh, 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 system in minor league baseball, like you mentioned, you're working in sales, you're, you're doing all of these different operations, pulling the tarp, like you said. How, how quickly were you able to adapt to all of that stuff? Because I know for me specifically, wanting to be a broadcaster, kind of working in sales at the same time, like it's, I don't want to call it intimidating, but at the same time, like I'm not really equipped in that field when you're first going into it. What was your experience like that? You're not equipped until you're equipped. You don't yeah. know until you know. You just have to throw yourself into the fire. And it is trial by fire. I mean, you're going to fail a lot. But it's like baseball. I mean, if you succeed three times out of ten when you're at the plate, you're an all-star. If you succeed three times out of ten on a sales call, I mean, you're going to be one of the top salesperson. You might be the top salesperson in your organization. You're making a big bonus. And you're making additional income for yourself. So just keeping everything into perspective, like you're not going to get a 10 out of 10. Like you're not going to make 10 sales phone calls and get 10 sales. It's just not the way that it's going to happen, especially in this economic environment. So just recognizing that your rate for failures can be much higher than your rate of success and making sure that you hit on those successes. Right. And for you, uh, in that, do you have any, again, like humbling experiences or kind of like, oh, crap moments when doing any of this stuff? I still have daily, weekly, yeah. monthly. I mean, you, you get on a sales phone call and one will, will sound great and then the next one you'll have, you'll, the person will hang up on you. Or you, know, you have a, a three-game series and two of the games will be great. You'll call a great nine-inning game. It'll be two hours and 45 minutes and you sound crisp. And then the last game of the series will be three hours and 50 minutes and your team will be blown out 14 to two and you know, you're really, you'll really struggle with the call. So it, it, it's a full two steps forward, one steps back, two steps back, one step forward type of process and you just got to take every day for what it is. What are some of the uh, more favorite cities that you've gotten a chance to broadcast a game or call a game? Because obviously you talked about Melbourne, Australia uh, for that one winner. What are some of the favorite cities, whether it was Melbourne or uh, Des Moines? What were some of your uh, more uh, accustomed cities when broadcasting? Well, every place that I've called a game, I have a special place in my heart. You know, I've been called my home stadium, so whether that's Huntsville or Melbourne, Australia or Idaho Falls or Bowling Green or, or Des Moines, Iowa, there, there's always a place in my heart for all those because you call them home. You understand the community. You understand you know, the history of the stadium and the ballpark and who's played there. So all those five places really stick out to me. But I'm actually going to go league by league. So I'll go Southern League with Huntsville. Uh, my two favorite places in the league would probably Tennessee with Tennessee Smokies, AA affiliate of the Chicago Cubs, uh, or Pensacola, uh, which at that point was the AA affiliate for the Reds. Now it's the Twins. Um, and they just had a great ballpark by the ocean. And if the wind was blowing out, you'd get yeah, five to ten home runs per game. So that was a lot of fun. Also, the new Birmingham Barron Stadium was beautiful in downtown Birmingham. Oh, yeah. Uh, then, then I'll go to the Pioneer League, Idaho Falls Chuckers. I mean, that was a part of the country that I had never been to before, and I still have not been back to. I mean, you go to the you know, Pacific Northwest or the mountains, and it's just beautiful. I mean, you go down to Ogden, Utah, or Orm, Utah, and... Uh, you look at Lindquist Field for the uh, Ogden Raptors, and beyond the center field wall, it's just mountains upon mountains upon mountains. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Uh, and then you go to the, the state of Montana and Missoula, the, the ballpark's right downtown, right by the college. You have the mountains in the background. I mean, it's yeah. spectacular. Uh, that and Billings with the downtown ballpark. It, it, it's pretty nice. You go to the Midwest League, and 
there, there's a lot of great spots. I mean, the Fort Wayne Tim Caps, Fort Wayne, Indiana, they probably have, if not the best stadium in minor league baseball, among the top five. I mean, it's just a special place to watch a game. Uh, pretty partial to the Cubs organization, South Bend right. Cubs. They do a great job at Fort Wayne's Field in South Bend. And then uh, I, I also really like uh, the Michigan spots. Lansing, um, I, I like Great Lakes, and I like West Michigan. I think they all do it really well. And then in the PCL, as the stadiums get bigger and newer and you have triple-A facilities, I mean, you go to these triple-A towns like Nashville with a great ballpark, First Tennessee Park, right downtown, awesome situation. Yeah, you go to Round Rock, and uh, it's just outside of Austin, Texas. That's a great time. You have Memphis, is a great city, AutoZone Park. I mean, you're two blocks away from Beale Street. Uh, then you go to Las Vegas, they just built a new ballpark. Yeah, Albuquerque is a great ballpark, Isotopes Park. Ball flies out. Um, those are the, really the ones that stick out to me. Salt Lake being right downtown in Salt Lake City uh, with the mountains in the background. Uh, really like Omaha. It's a short trip for us. So uh, all the stadiums of the PCL are awesome. So th- those are just the ones that stick out to me. Do you prefer kind of like the old school traditional minor league uh, baseball stadiums? Like when there's more history, like you mentioned some of those cities. Or are you absolutely one of those guys that like fell in love with some of these new stadiums that quite honestly are not minor league baseball facilities, you know? It's tough because I view it as a fan when I go to major league ballparks. I like the older parks better. I, I like Wrigley Field. I like Fenway Park. I like the old Yankee Stadium. But from a broadcast standpoint, you know, the, the vantage point is so important and the sightlines are so important that you know, Wrigley Field is one of my favorite baseball stadiums, but they have a notoriously bad radio press box yeah. the sightlines. So it becomes that much more important. And the newer stadiums in, in all of their respective leagues just have better broadcast booths. I mean, you have better technology, you have better internet service, you have higher up windows, you have bigger windows, you have bigger booths. So. Yeah, the newer the better when it comes to minor league baseball, but as a fan, I, I like a more historic baseball stadium. For for some of the big league uh, press boxes that you mentioned, like Wrigley Field, uh, elite ballpark, probably one of the greatest ballparks out there from a traditional standpoint. You mentioned the, the booth not so hot. What are some of the other uh, uh, broadcast booths that you've liked and have disliked? I actually haven't been to that many big league press boxes. Uh, I, I'm a little partial to the Odako Coliseum, uh, which is where the athletics play. Um, you know, for the stadium being so old, the press boxes have a perfect panoramic view uh, of Mount Davis and the entire stadium. So uh, I actually do like that press box. The stadium leaves a little bit more to be desired. I like Citizens Bank Park. Uh, I like Camden Yards. Uh, but I actually haven't been to a, a big league ballpark in which the press box I don't like. And I actually have not been to the Wrigley Field press box. I've just heard that, you know, because it's so old, uh, it's not as spacious, which I guess makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, I imagine. And on the topic of kind of broadcast booths and broadcasters in general, for you being in the business for as long as you, you've been, who are some of the broadcasters that have kind of, uh, like, quote-unquote, taken you under your wing, perhaps, or kind of have uh, helped you along the way? Yeah, uh, spending the, the summer that I did in Oakland and sitting in the booth with Ken Korak and Vince Catronio, the radio voices for the Oakland Athletics, I mean, they've been huge mentors uh, when it comes to you know, my development as a broadcaster. I mean, they've been 
incredible and that's not even doing it enough justice yeah. they, they call they text they listen to my demos they give you know, honest feedback whether it's good whether it's bad whether it's stuff that i do well whether it's stuff that i need to work on i mean they, they they've been incredible uh dave sims uh, with the seattle mariners yep. he actually grew up in philadelphia and we went to the same elementary school so <laughs> just connecting through that small fraternity uh dave's been awesome i mean he, yeah. he calls frequently just checking up on yeah, you know, all, all the broadcasters that he talks to, um, Scott Fransky with the Philadelphia Phillies, great. Len Casper with the Chicago Cubs, obviously making that link. Um, you know, he, he's been tremendous. The Cubs have been tremendous. Uh, Pat Hughes uh, with the limited interactions that I've had with him, he's been nothing but helpful. Uh, Jeff Levering for the Milwaukee Brewers, yeah. uh, being a former minor league broadcaster himself for a decade. I mean, he he understands the grind as well as everybody else. So. Um, I mean, there's so many that, you know, have reached out that if you do reach out to them, they send you, you know, a, a really nice critique, whether it's Joe Block from the Pittsburgh Pirates, Wayne Randazzo from uh, the New York Mets, uh, Joe Davis from the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, Tim Never from the Los Angeles Dodgers, too. If, if you're personal to them, they'll be personal back to you. So um, you talk to any major league broadcaster for the most part, and they'll be great. I mean, just from my experience alone these past couple of years, kind of reaching out to people, I mean, you're being generous enough to talk to me right now. It just seems that the whole community in sports broadcasting seems to be uh, very uh, giving in a sense. I mean, how, how close are you with uh, other broadcasters in minor league baseball at the AAA level when you're traveling uh, during a normal season? Yeah, you're really close with them. I mean, I, you know, for my time in the Midwest League, I'm still in a fantasy football league. So just being able to keep in touch with everybody, and it is, it's a small fraternity. I mean, you spend, you know, 140 games, 152 days doing the same exact thing as these guys, and you're going through the trials and tribulations of, of any season, whether it's a rain delay or a bus breakdown or your team sucks. I mean, it's it, it's important to have people in your corner that understand what you're going through. So, yeah, we keep in touch very frequently, and, and it's really nice to have them in your corner. So, and uh, this is uh, just kind of switching gears here uh, to something entirely different, but for you, I know for me, when I first started broadcasting, even at just the college level, at the, at the lowest level that you uh, could be at, the nerves always kind of uh, catch up to you in a sense, certain broadcasts more than others. For you, at any level during your career thus far, what, what would you say was the most nerve-wracking experience for you in the business, whether it was like kind of like uh, the jitters before a game or something during a game that you may have said that didn't quite sit right with you? Like, What was the most uh, nerve-wracking experience for you in broadcasting? I would say that came this past November. Uh, I was actually out in uh, Asia broadcasting the Premier 12, uh, which is you know, the precursor to what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics. It was yeah. supposed to determine two of the countries that were playing in the Olympics as well as seeding. And I was actually able to call the gold medal game, Japan versus Korea, from the Tokyo Dome. Wow. And doing a stand-up with J.P. Morosi with 45,000 people watching about 35 <laughs> minutes before first pitch, uh, I looked at J.P. about a minute before I went on. I was like, I'm about to pass out. You know, I, you're going to have to hold me up. Like, I'm spinning. <laughs> uh, and, and that's when you really just have to focus on your breathing. Take three big, deep breaths and just center yourself and make sure that you're in the zone. I mean, breathing is so important with any broadcast, not just the high-pressure flow broadcast. So uh, being able to learn that, I've, I've also listened to some podcasts and read some books on, you know, taking, you know, trying to take control of my voice, you know, care of my voice, uh, you know, just knowing what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say, and how it's going to sound. 
and, and just making sure that all my energy is going to the right places. So uh, breathing is very important. I, I really uh, was able to notice that when uh, I was about to pass out at the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> so you're in front of 45,000 people. Like, Did you do any uh, superstitious thing beforehand? Like you mentioned, obviously, uh, breathing, the most important thing. Like, Was it obvious that you were nervous in the eyes of other people that you asked? I don't, I, at that point, I didn't care. Yeah. Um, probably. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I think I went into the, the camera well and jumped around for a little bit and just shook my hands. But um, no, there was no superstition. It's just making sure that you don't screw up and put yourself in the best situation to you have a good broadcast or have a good stand-up or have a good pregame show. And you know, whether that's breathing, whether that is you know, washing your face of cold water before you go on air, yeah. and everybody has their own things. It's just, I wouldn't call it superstition. I would call it preparation. Right, and how how'd that segment end up with J.P. Morosi? <laughs> uh, I think it went fine. You know, I, I have a copy of it. I mean, it wasn't my best on-air segment, but it definitely wasn't my worst considering the circumstances. But, you know, just being able to call a gold medal game on a global perspective and, you know, having 45,000 fans and that type of atmosphere and crowd noise, I mean, that's something that I'll never forget. It's pretty special. And, like, not to rank certain moments, but that's got to be one of the more uh, ones up there for you. It's I mean, baseball one. in the it's Tokyo number, Dome, it, right? It's number one. It's number one far and away. You know, between that and uh, just calling the Premier 12, you know, calling a game in Taiwan, a Chinese Taipei game in Taiwan where they have – you know, coordinated chance for every single player that goes up, uh, able to call a cup spring training game at Sloan Park. Those are probably the top three moments of my professional broadcasting career. And on the topic of kind of like channeling those inner nerves before, whether it's a segment or a broadcast in front of that many people, have you ever said anything on the air that like didn't come out right, whether it was like verbiage or something that was just kind of semi-embarrassing that you were like, oh, crap. Oh. Yeah. Always. I mean, you always, uh, you know, you, you'll say a detail wrong or a word wrong or the count wrong or the score wrong. I mean, I fortunately I've never cursed or you know, had to deal with any FCC yeah. regulations. But, um, yeah, I mean, you make mistakes all the time. I mean, there are things that I say wrong on a broadcast every day, which is making sure that you either correct yourself or you play it off. And, uh, you know, making a mistake doesn't mean you're a bad broadcaster. It means that you're human. And right. just trying to limit those mistakes and make them as minimal as possible. How have your uh, relationships been, uh, whether it's with players, coaches, like for the most part, are you able to uh, gain healthy uh, chemistry and relationships with those guys? Have you have, have ever had any issues with uh, certain players throughout your time? Of course. I mean, these players come from different backgrounds. You know, some are first-round draft picks, some are 40th-round draft picks or free agents, and you know, some have their, their agents or their personal trainers or their parents in, your ear, in their ear, and some don't care. I mean, it's just, you know, you have you know, different relationships with different guys. Some coaches are, are more than willing to talk about their strategy or pitching rotation or how their bullpen lines up, and now their managers and coaches are more, you know, close to the coffin. They don't like to talk about those things, and they don't like to talk about themselves, so... Um, you have to take it person by person. You can't just have a general relationship with every single player that you have. You, you want to try to make it as neutral as possible, but you know, there's certain people who you just gravitate towards, and right. you have to make sure that that relationship is, one, professional, and two, healthy. And, and I've been able to, you know, fortunately facilitate those in the, in the 12 years that I broadcasted baseball, but it, it's taken some time to find that balance. 
Now, and again, on that topic, how difficult is, I mean, it's got to be difficult kind of, uh, like you mentioned, kind of like kind of like seeing how things go with certain guys. Like, have you kind of like picked up on certain things where it's like, okay, I'm going to have a good relationship with this guy where like another guy is just kind of like, okay, this might not be as easy. Yeah, I mean, you notice if a guy is more quiet or reluctant to talk to you or if they uh, decline doing a pregame or postgame interview with you or a feature story. I mean, you just, there are certain guys that are more gregarious and are willing to talk to you because you, you are a part of the organization, but you're not a part of the coaching staff. Right. And you're kind of a part of the media. So, yeah, they have a certain level of trust with you. I mean, there's countless of guys that I could bring up that have been awesome to me. And there's only a few guys that have been crappy to me. So the fact that the better outweighs the bad, that, that, that's a pretty good thing. Yeah. Have you ever been overwhelmed by a player in that sense? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming earlier on in your in your days of broadcasting, not now, but has there been anybody that's kind of overwhelmed you in the sense of kind of like that negative energy? I don't think overwhelmed, but, you know, when you, your first year in minor league baseball, like mine was when I was 23 with the Hudson Stars, and we were neg- you know, 30 games under 500, it's a tough year to broadcast because you have these athletes who are critical about their own play, critical about their own path to the big leagues, and if you're critical about them on air, you're not helping them get to their intended goal. So, yeah, there's probably some guys who are frustrated with the way that I was depicting what they were doing. But, yeah, when it comes down to it, if you're one for 20, you're one for 20. Yeah, right. I can't say that you're 10 for 20. It's just that the facts speak for themselves. And that's kind of what I've been able to pride myself on when I when I broadcast. I mean, the facts are the facts. I try to be as objective as possible. Yeah, I mean, facts don't care about your feelings, right? I mean, that, that's yeah. the, the general sense. Uh, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go, I want to take too much of your time here, but you climbing the ranks through uh, a minor league baseball, single A, a double A, triple A. I'm going to assume your biggest goal in broadcasting is to broadcast in the big leagues. I think that's, that assumption is correct. Yeah. Everybody who, who I know when they break into minor league baseball, they, they either want to broadcast for their hometown team or they want to broadcast for a big league team. Yeah. yeah. Ever since I was younger, I wanted to broadcast for a big league team, and it wasn't just the Philadelphia Phillies. So you're breaking into this industry, and obviously, like understanding that when I was a fan, you know, being a Phillies fan, I didn't like the Mets, and I didn't like the Braves, and I didn't like the Nationals. Now working in the industry, if any of those teams are like, hey, you want to call big league games for this? I'll, I'll sign the dotted line. I'll get a tattoo of their logo anywhere on my body, and <laughs> I'm ready to go. I mean, it's it, it's a different element of being a fan for a team and then working for a team and growing up a Phillies fan but all the teams that I worked for when I worked for the Idaho Falls Chuckers I rooted for the Royals when I worked for the Bowling Green Hot Rods I rooted for the Rays worked for the Iowa Cubs I rooted for the Cubs it's just the way that it goes right and for you obviously big baseball guy did you broadcast any other sports in college did you have any other desire to broadcast in any other sport I mean, I broadcasted all, all sports before baseball. So for college, I broadcasted basketball, football, wrestling, field hockey, soccer. Um, I broadcasted swimming, golf in high school, uh, lacrosse. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I had aspirations to call those games, but that was all part of, of finding my rhythm and finding my pace and finding my voice. And it was really important for me to call those games because they do have a different rhythm than baseball. Right. Um, and some have the same rhythm as baseball. So just being able to define 
you know, the difference between a football broadcast and a basketball broadcast and a baseball broadcast naturally may be a better broadcaster. Right. Did you did you feel like you found your voice right, like not right away, but like when it all came down to it, uh, baseball was going to be it for you? Like that's where you found your voice. That's where you were most comfortable in both the play-by-play aspect and kind of the storytelling aspect too. I mean, I'm still not fully comfortable in it. I mean, that's something that I still try to work on every single broadcast. And, you know, I got a word of advice from a mentor of mine. By game 1,000, you'll have an idea if you want to do it or if you don't, or if you feel comfortable doing it or if you don't. And right. I'm right around 1,000 games, and I'm starting to feel more comfortable day in and day out calling a baseball game. But when I say that I found my, my full and total voice that I'm going to be using for the next three decades yeah. of my broadcasting career, I don't know about that. But I, I just know that I go back and I listen to my good broadcast, and I am proud of that. Um, so when it comes to finding my voice, I still think I'm finding it. I think it's an incomplete grade. What do you think is your biggest goal uh, going into the 2021 season, besides from you know having a season and getting things to kind of back to semi-normalcy? What do you think is your biggest goal as a broadcaster in 2021? Taking it one game, taking it one game at a time. Yeah. And, just calling that that first game of the 2021 season and and not pretending that it's game seven of the world series just taking it for what it is it's opening day it'll be naturally exciting and letting the game come to me instead of me coming to the game so yeah um just i'm not gonna say treat it like it's any normal game because it's not uh but taking it all in stride and, and making sure that I, I give the same amount of energy to game number 70 that i do to game number one and i i Surely hope we have a 2021 season. Hopefully you get back on the air. Alex, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. I'll let you get back to your life, back to your family, and I hope you stay safe uh, in Jersey right now because it seems pretty safe right now in Jersey, right? Nothing too crazy. Yeah. If you could socially distance on the beach, it's, it's just fine. And yeah. I appreciate you, you taking the time to talk to me, and uh, I wish you luck, man. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude, she's listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube